Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. For most older adults, driving is a symbol of independence. It allows them to run errands and connects them to family, friends, and social activities. As people age, however, they are more likely to be involved in traffic accidents, and their driving may be unsafe if they have medical problems. My guest today is Dr. David Bernstein, geriatrician and author of Senior Driving Dilemmas, Life-Saving Strategies. He's going to talk about health problems older adults may face as they grow older and warning signs indicating it's time to stop driving. He'll also provide tips for families who need to talk with their older adult relatives about giving up driving. So welcome, Dr. Bernstein, and thank you for joining me today. Cheryl, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Okay. Well, Dr. Bernstein, let's just talk about generally thinking of driver's license and driving. Why is having a driver's license and driving so important to older adults? Well, it's a great question because drivers, people didn't drive in the 1800s and and only after cars were invented and and people started to drive that licenses even came into effect. And and it's it's always been a vexing situation because it's, it's all about independence, control, prestige. And when um, our generation started addressing it with our parents, our parents started living longer and not having uh, succumb to disease so that they automatically gave up their license when they died, but they were living longer and there was no uh, framework with which to give up driving. So it became a, a bit of a struggle and people didn't have a roadmap, pardon the pun, of, about when to give up a license. And um, it, it, it would almost be like a badge of courage my older patients would say, but doctor, I'm a good driver. I can still drive. And I'm just had my 95th birthday. So um, people were really proud of it. So as you heard in my introduction, I had mentioned about they're more likely to be involved in traffic accidents. Why are older adults more at risk for for car accidents? Well, there's several components to your question. And, And one is mile for mile driven adults are in more accidents that's correct although they're overall they're in fewer accidents because they drive far fewer miles and they don't take some of the risks that younger people do Um, that being said the other part of this is that um, they have conditions that will affect their driving vision hearing musculoskeletal problems uh, central nervous system problems and dementia are, are among the other things including medications. Older adults take more and more medications and some of the medications either sedating or affect the nervous system or uh, affect the strength in their muscles. So um, they think it's okay to drive even though they're taking those medicines. And I may have more to say about that later, but those are the components that uh, have an impact on driving. Taking that one step further, would you say that older adults are more likely to be involved in fatal crashes? Yes. And even though they drive fewer miles, they are, have a much higher risk of fatalities when they're in auto accidents. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that they're frail. And what might impact someone 
of a younger age, modestly, uh, it could be the end of someone's life if they're older. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they die at the scene of the accident or that they die five days after the accident. But putting an older adult in a hospital in a rehab setting, and there's all kinds of setup for adverse outcomes, which is understandable. I would even add, interestingly, in uh, the Washington area, not too many months ago, there was an older adult who was involved in a crash where that individual drove up on the sidewalk and uh, in front of a restaurant and folks were dining outside and there was two fatalities of not him, but the individuals who were sitting at the table. So they may be involved in car accidents that could also be fatal to folks who are involved in those crashes. Oh, you're absolutely right. And my view of the world or my community or the United States is that, you know, every one of those areas is their own little microcosm. So what you have, what you uh, experienced by reading about it in Washington would happen in Memphis, Tennessee and St. Louis, Missouri and Chicago and, and all over. There are accidents of that sort. Um, even um, my, my, one of the nurses that worked in our office, and she was an older woman, and she'd go out for lunch or brunch with her husband on Saturdays. Someone drove through the window in that diner. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's in every city. Exactly. And that's an, a major important part of this, uh, is that it may not be the driver that gets injured, but who they're injuring. Right. So as a physician, I'd like to hear a little bit more from you to explain. You mentioned a little bit about some of the uh, impairments that may affect driving. Talk a little more about vision or hearing problems and how that might affect driving. Well, until I started taking care of lots and lots of older adults, I didn't realize how impactful and how prevalent visual impairments are. You know, we think about, well, we wear glasses, but, you know, as people age, they get um, cataracts. Some people are vain and will not have their cataracts repaired, or they feel they're too old and just are not going to go through with that. But it will affect their vision and particularly their night vision. What, what also was, was an alarming number of people and get particularly uh, debilitated from it or disabled is the impact of macular degeneration because it's insidious and it's onset. Glasses don't fix the problem. Almost nothing does. My 97 and a half year old mother-in-law has macular degeneration and goes for injections in her eyes. But when she's done, she doesn't feel that it's really made much of a difference. And, and so while she is no longer driving, there are many other adults who are driving with macular degeneration and it really impacts their vision, particularly their, their central vision. So there are people who will decline intervention and have poor vision and still think it's okay to drive. Um, and I do remember one of my patients having very severe vision and his wife would navigate from the passenger seat when he, where he should turn. Um, he also was a man who um, had very bad arthritis in his neck. So there was no checking of blind spots, no turning his head from side to side uh, to check for traffic. And there are many people out there like that. And, and I was fortunate where my office was located. And I had many patients in this condominium complex near my house or near my office. 
And uh, I would jokingly say, well, if they were blind in their left eye and all they had to do was make, make right turns, they can get to my office. Um, and many did. And I only on rare occasions did I go out in the parking lot and look at their cars and just inter, interact in terms of what I needed to do about that. And, and hearing is another problem that we don't think about too much when we're in a car, but hearing is really important for hearing what's going on around us and sirens and, and any kind of warnings that we need and hearing um, will impact our driving. So um, the, um, the one other thing I want to point out related but to our subject is people who have hearing and visual uh, deficits will also be more likely to develop cognitive impairment. And, and part of that reason is, is that we rely on on uh, stimuli, visual and hearing stimuli, to stimulate our brain and keep it active. So when we lose some of those inputs, um, we tend to uh, be less interactive with people, more withdrawn, and we we develop cognitive loss, memory loss. So so there is a lot of things that intersect intersect the the answer to your question. And I wanted to just get back. I, I thank you for bringing up about arthritis and the individual that you mentioned, your patient not being able to turn his neck, I would suspect that there might be other physical health issues like stiff joints or muscle weakness, just in terms of being behind the wheel, uh, these these factors, these conditions that are more likely to occur uh, amongst older adults. Would you agree? Yes, I would, Charlotte. And it's a really important point because um, as, as we age, or as I've seen people age, they become less and less aware of, of their physical changes and their loss of ability. So their joints are stiff, their, their necks are a very significant problem, and, and their backs in terms of their mobility, their strength and their arms to quickly react. And, and the nervous system changes that occur in terms of reaction times to stoplights and yellow lights and, and pedestrians. And so um, there's multitude of things. And in, in fact, the, the other thing I, I, I came to my attention one time when I was taking care of one of my patients was that um, he was on narcotics for his chronic pain and he was using a walker when he came to visit me. And um, he asked me a question and I just said, are you still driving? And he said, yeah, doc, because my wife doesn't want to drive and I, you know, I have to go here and there and doctor appointments. I went, and you still drive? You're taking such doses of narcotics. You have a walker. And it occurred to me, I said, well, what would happen if you had a flat tire and you had to get out of the car and somebody would see you with a walker on the street or the police would come by in a tow truck? What would they think of you? He said, well, I have no problem. And then I have a cell phone. I'd call for a flat tire. And I took action and intervened in this man's driving because he had no business on the road. And, and some of the other things you mentioned, Cheryl, about musculoskeletal problems is like, well, if they're going to drive all by themselves to do something, what's going to happen when they get there if they have those physical disabilities? And how are they going to go into Home Depot or do their grocery shopping when they can barely walk? So we need to be up our game a little bit about who's driving and being careful about it. And I would suspect too, now you mentioned about narcotics as uh, medications. I'm assuming that there are other kinds of medications besides narcotics 
side effects, perhaps, of medications that could impact an ability of an older adult to drive. Can you name some or tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. There, you know, and just to be clear, there's prescription medications and over-the-counter medications. And there's this belief that over-the-counter medicines, well, if they're over-the-counter, they're really safe and I can take them. Um, and nothing could be further from the truth. So I can start with one of those. And it's it's one that disturbs me a great greatly is uh, like the sleep medications that are that are advertised on television and and Benadryl was the trade name, but it's diphene, hydramine, and it's these compounds that are put in like Tylenol PM and Excedrin PM. So diphene, hydramine is an old fashioned antihistamine and it's sedating and that it's being used for its sedating effect, but it also has effects on your brain and it also has a lingering effect. So it doesn't wear off if you, and my patients would say, well, I wasn't falling asleep really well, doc. So I took the medicine at midnight instead of eight o'clock. And then when I got up, I, I went to drive and I'm thinking, well, but that medicine isn't out of your system yet. And so you're driving impaired at between until noon or something like that. Uh, and there have been reports of accidents as a result of that. The other thing I would point out is that the anticholinergic effect of that medicine, another side effect of that medicine, is it can impair cognition and it, it can um, make someone have memory impairment. So they'll get up in the morning and they'll go, I don't remember where I put my keys. I forgot what I was doing today and I got to get to the store. And it's like their cognition is impaired. Now, flip to the prescription side, narcotics are often not considered as something that would affect someone's memory but or, or their driving ability, but they do and they're sedating. And people take them in a routine fashion so that there's always narcotic in their system. So they're driving with narcotic in their system, which can be hazardous. And um, they don't consider that that's a problem. And, and finally, I want to talk about sleeping pills because many people take sleeping pills. And um, the one that's most popular and common, and we hear about it in the news, is Ambien. And so one of the things, there, the two things that are important, number one, that Ambien um, gets and works very quickly and should be out of a person's system. But if they take it late at night or it's not out of their system, then they get up and they drive while impaired. The other thing that's important is that women metabolize this medicine so much more slowly than men so that the dose for a woman is significantly less. But if a person, a woman, were to get their hands and get a prescription, they would be taking the adult dose and it would last longer. And there have been several uh, well-publicized um, accidents that have occurred uh, as a result of, of Ambien. So people need to keep that in mind and it does cause impairment and it does have a, a, a lingering effect. And, and one final point is in my, these happen in my younger patients, but nonetheless, it causes sort of like sleepwalking. So I've had patients, my favorite story was a man who took a sleeping pill, uh, Ambien, never took one before, uh, went to sleep. And when he woke up in the morning, he had a um, bag of French fries, a hamburger, and a new video game in his bed. So the story would be that he got up in the middle of the night, went to Walmart, bought a video game, French fries, and a burger, and got back in bed and didn't even know it. 
So um, it was a medicine that my pen rarely wrote because of stories like that. And I didn't want to have any part of it as the prescribing physician. Very scary. I wanted to cover one more because I want to start talking about how older adults can stay safe on the road. But you have mentioned several times about cognitive deficiencies or cognitive issues. And I'm assuming that we're talking about Alzheimer's disease, perhaps other types of dementia. Would you say that a person should still drive with one of these uh, conditions? Sure. I've written five, four books in the past 10 years. And my first book was going to be called, But Doctor, I'm a Good Driver, because my patients would tell me that they thought they were good drivers. Um, and um, I softened my perspective on who should be driving and who shouldn't be driving. Because if we took away licenses from uh, every person who had even mild cognitive abilities or dis dysfunction, then um, we'd have a massive problem with people needing transportation. So after doing some more reading and adjusting my thinking a little bit, I think if we put um, boundaries on people and limits on people and where they would drive and, and they're, they're rational enough to, re to uh, respect those boundaries, like going to the bank, going to church, going for grocery shopping and for hairdresser. Um, those are things that are real necessities for people, uh, for older adults, that they need to do those things. And as long as they're within a short range and there are a few right turns, and left turns, and people aren't have gone there for so many years and they're not likely to get lost, um, I think we need to be cognizant that that amount of independence can go a long way. Now, it changes a lot when people start getting lost. And um, that's a significant problem or with the physical and more severe disabilities that people have, I think then a, a different decision comes about. Okay. And have you found any other health conditions that could prevent an older adult from driving? Well, I men mentioned the vision, the hearing, a cognitive impairment and the musculoskeletal. Uh, I think we have to be realistic about people with pulmonary conditions who are driving and need oxygen and how are, where, what are they doing if they're all by themselves and they're driving and they have to get their oxygen on out of the car and go somewhere. And similarly for people with congestive heart failure, um, if they're in a similar situation where they can't get a handicapped spot and, or they, they have to walk a long distance or it's raining or the weather's inclement or it's snowing. If you're up north, I live in Florida, so I don't think about the snow, but uh, people sometimes don't turn on that capacity of their reasoning and do things that aren't safe. Um, I've learned through my experiences as a geriatrician that being cognizant of safety concerns is, is supreme. I'm getting off the subject a little bit, but I tell my patients after 65, they shouldn't be on a ladder. Um, they shouldn't be shoveling snow. They shouldn't be trying to drive in the snow. I mean, things that will quickly end their life. And there was a fellow physician of mine who retired and within six months fell off a ladder, changing a light bulb and died. So, um, and he was one of my most respected physicians and should have known better. And to that point then, I, I also just wanted to check what do you tell your um, older adult patients then in terms of the steps that they can take 
to stay safe on the road. I mean, we've talked about all of these conditions and issues and that can jeopardize their ability to drive, but if they still are driving, are there certain ways or thoughts or, or steps, again, uh, that they can take to stay safe on the road? Um, I think I'd basically limit it to, you know, they should stay within a small perimeter. Uh, they should limit the number of steps they have to, the, the places they have to go at a given time. Um, they have to know their route and, and not deviate from their route. Um, and then they need to start having discussions with family and friends of how they can get to some of the places that are more distant and more difficult to go to. Um, for people, I think of some couple that I was taking care of that drove 15, 20 miles to get to an evening event because they wanted to, to hear a certain lecture. And, and I thought that was a really bad idea. And I recommended they find a friend who can drive them. And they did. So throughout the years of your practice, then, is there a certain age when older adults should no longer be driving or is it kind of all over the map or what, what would you tell us to in terms of our listeners beginning to think what's an age when I have to start thinking about alternatives or the family starts thinking about alternatives? Great question. We could spend the rest of the hour talking about that one. <laughs> I, I think the first of all, there is no specific age at which people should stop driving. And here in Florida, um, Again, when I think about, but doctor, I'm a good driver is the title of a book, or at least the chapter of my book, um, patients would come and tell me that a doctor, look at me, I just turned 90 and I have a new license and it goes for six years. I can drive until I'm 96. I'm thinking like, no, it's going to expire, but you can make a decision to make a change. Um, it gets me into the thought process of, of family involvement. So um, if my family suddenly came up to me uh, and said, uh, look, you got to stop driving tomorrow, that's not going to work very well. If, if people had the recognition of some of the things that I've seen in my career, um, that conversation may start in their 50s or 60s and say, hey, dad, you know, um, we just want to make sure that you're always safe. We love you. We want you to be around for a long time. And from time to time, let's consider the fact that we're going to talk about driving. We don't talk about it right now because your driving is really pretty good. Will you consent to having that kind of conversation with us in the future? And if we feel that you should stop driving, will you go along with that? And, and hopefully the conversation will go, sure, I love my family and I have lots of different reasons for, for listening to you and respecting your, your recommendations. So sure, let's talk about it, you know, every year when you come down for the holidays and make sure uh, that driving is okay. That's the perfect scenario. The opposite scenario is, oh, it's your 90th birthday, dad. Now it's time to stop driving. And there, it's met with a lot of resistance and there's no planning involved in that conversation. Like, okay, if you take away my keys now, how am I going to do those five things that I do all week long? How am I going to go meet my friends for lunch or coffee? How am I going to get to the bank? How's my grocery shopping going to be done? We haven't made any of those plans and those things are really important. <clears throat> and so um, while there's no exact age, you know, we just have to start thinking about 
how we can replace some of the things we go and do uh, or get assistance to doing that. And that's what we're going to talk about in the second half. So we're going to take a short break right now. And in case you tuned in late, we're talking with Dr. David Bernstein, who is a geriatrician. He's also author of a book called Senior Driving Dilemmas, Life-Saving Strategies. And you're listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. with Dr. David Bernstein, who is a geriatrician and author of Senior Driving Dilemmas, Life-Saving Strategies. And we talked a lot in the first half about the various conditions and situations which might uh, be a forecast of what uh, what might be coming. But uh, Dr. Bernstein, help us understand a little bit more about indications that an older adult is not driving safely. Well, it's, a, it's really interesting because it takes a lot of investigative work from everybody, family members and so forth. But, you know, if someone's had a traffic violation or an accident, I mean, that's really pretty telling um, and sometimes not telling because I've had patients in their late 80s that I've never had an accident and I've never had a violation. And usually I stick out my hand, shake it, shake their hand and say, congratulations, you've retired as a driver without any of those infractions. But um, that never went over really well, uh, although they appreciated my sense of humor. Um, the other part of my sense of humor is that some of these people may have their body shop on speed dial. But um, and the the thing that's interesting and the thing I loved about my job is I was a detective. So I had to find some of those clues. And it might be a tip from family members or uh, a friend of theirs who is also a patient and there's no violation. Uh, I'm taking in information, not giving out information. And, and I love my skills like Inspector Clouseau uh, from the Pink Panther series and um, Lieutenant Columbo, where I would just ask one more question, one more question to try and peel the onion of what's going on in their lives Oh, how's your car? I understand it's white. Oh, you changed the color to red. Oh, how come? Well, there was an accident. And, you know, I would uncover things and I'd say, well, maybe it's time you shouldn't be driving. Or, um, gee, you just took your old car to your two-year-old car and traded in for a brand new red Cadillac and you're, you're 92 years old and your Parkinson's disease is getting worse. Uh, you should not be driving. So um, I would look at those warning signs and 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 be that detective that would get information from other sources and never never reveal my source never let my patients know that i knew something they didn't think i knew and are are you also finding that there are warning signs with with respect to your patients as well that begins to start th- you need to start your telling them about uh, the fact that they may need to stop driving? 
Sure, I look at those warning signs, um, and and there are other things that may get reported, like getting lost um, is, is another one. Um, you know, I mentioned this a little earlier. Every city, every town is very similar. If you drive up the main street, there's a Home Depot and there's a grocery store and there's 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 fast food restaurants. So it doesn't take much to get lost. You drive five miles past one place that you're looking for, you'll find it five miles up the road at Walgreens or CVS. So it's, it's very distracting to older adults when they're looking around and trying to find their way. And those are the things that lead to those accidents and, and serious consequences because they keep driving and they keep looking before they know it. They're, they're 20, 30 miles away from where they started. Uh, fortunately, police will pick them up. And that's another way of knowing that something went wrong because they had to stop someone or they went to a gas station and the gas station told them that they were off course quite a bit and then they called the police. And, and so there are other telltale things. And then they won't tell their family that this happened. They'll keep it very secretive because their badge of honor and their independence are at stake. Um, so people were not always honest with me about what really was going on. And that really leads me to my next question. Have you found or did you find when you were seeing patients on a full-time basis that older adults are hesitant to admit even to themselves and, of course, to family members when they've been in a dangerous situation in driving or while they're driving? Do they want to admit that this has happened or not so much? Not so much. They they would decline or they would deny that anything like that happened. And especially if they have memory impairment, they they just do their memory impairment bit and say, no, nothing happened. I don't remember that. Even my mother-in-law, the last time she drove, she was in a car accident and she said, I don't remember that. It was, yeah, there was that woman, but she, she didn't stop at the stop sign. And and they have very selective memory. And, and they, they're they protect this to the to their death. And one thing that I really appreciated in looking at your book was you talked about types of tests that are available to measure physical and cognitive capabilities of older adults and their ability to drive. Tell us a little bit more about those tests. What what do they measure? How when do you decide or when did you decide that it was good to have those tests? Glad to. Um, there are things that a physician can do within their own office. So um, even the former president took a mental status exam. We all heard about that when when he touted it. But there's a mini mental status exam, and there are several. There are about 30 point questions um, that would test someone's cognitive ability and their short term memory and and their ability to solve problems. So that's the cognitive test. Then there's a physical test that's very easy. First, you can just look at your patient, see how they're moving and so forth. But there's also a, a get up and go test that any physician can do. And it's just you ask your patient to get up out of their chair, walk across the room and sit back down and do it within 15 seconds. And you'd be surprised how long it takes someone to walk 10 feet in a room and sit back down. And that's a telltale sign that there's this loss of strength, flexibility, uh, mobility to do those things. Um, then the the other things are um, someone can have an on-road test. Some people can have their family follow them or the family can follow them as secretively. 
Um, and I made a, a commitment with my patients that if they, or, or an agreement with them, if they agreed to take a certain kind of test, and I call this one drive able, which is done in physical therapy departments in our local hospital, but it, there are occupational therapy centers uh, with hospitals that do driving evaluations. This drive able is a computer computerized test an evaluation that has a very high correlation with one's driving ability. So my commitment with my patients was, if you take this test and pass, you're free to drive. If you do not take pass this test, we're gonna agree that you're gonna relinquish your license and make alternative plans. I, I can't say that that was a fun experience and always went over well because people would tell me why they failed that test. And I'd say, well, the test says that there's a 95% probability that you would fail an on-road test. So there's not a lot of, you know, you're not on the border here. And they'd say, well, it was a computerized test and I'm not really good with computers, but it, the test is well-designed and there are others that, that do this. Uh, another thing that may not be exactly in that category is that the AARP has a driver safety course. So that will up someone's game by taking that. And when they do take that, they have a, they uh, are allowed to have a discount on their automobile insurance. Based on all of the experiences that you've had overall, is it more likely that an older adult will decide to stop driving on their own, that they come to that realization, or is it usually a family member or friend who decides it's time to take away the keys or have the have the talk, which we're going to talk more about now in the in the rest of this interview. What's been your experience? I can't recall anybody saying, Doc, I just turned uh, 88. I turned in my keys. Uh, no one talked to me about it. It was mo my own idea. Usually somebody at least planted a seed. And, and I would encourage family members, and I use this expression, beg, borrow, and steal, do whatever it takes. If you know someone shouldn't, a family member shouldn't be driving, they, they do something. Um, and I relied on lots of different people who would have an impact. Surprisingly, I think hairdressers have had an impact on it. But one of my favorite stories is, is, is a patient of mine who boasted about the fact that she loved going to Hawaii and she'd been there 20, 25 times and she met Don Ho and she had this whole spiel that she would tell me and her back was terrible. I mean, she could barely walk and she was in pain all the time. And, um, this was years ago, but she had the a car, it was a PT Cruiser, which is like a young person's car. And no matter what I suggested to her, um, she would not stop driving. She said, I need to go here and there. And, um, Unbeknownst to me or with my involvement, um, she asked me for the name of a massage therapist. So my massage therapist who took care of me would go to her house. The massage therapist convinced her to move in with her kids in Michigan and give up her driving. So you never know how you're and who is going to impact that person. But um, Mary D, the massage therapist, was a well-educated woman. Uh, and she had an impact. Oh, you know, I, I played a little role because we talked about it a little bit when I gave her the, the assignment to do the massage therapy. So rely on anybody and everybody to try and have an impact. So what I'm hearing is that it, it certainly families are very concerned and they may think it has to be 
them, a family member that talks with an older relative about driving. But what I'm hearing you say is it could be a trusted friend or it could be even a, a, a clergyman or a rabbi or um, and I, it sounds like even in your case that you may have had a, played a role as the physician for an older adult. So give us a little bit more overview of maybe circumstances which might uh, warrant the right person to, to start this conversation. Well, I, I think the individual has to get flooded with the thought that things need to change. So it could come from the physician. And as a physician, uh, family, I accepted a phone call from a family member that would say, please talk to mom about driving. We've tried to talk to her, had work. I want to divert for a minute and say, please allow mom to continue to drive because we don't like her. We don't want to be with her. We live out of state. We have kids and we have jobs and we can't take her around and we can't see a solution for this problem. So it doesn't always go ex exactly the way you and I would think that someone would want to hold on to their license. They're holding on to their license because they're on a, suddenly on an island if they lose their license and their family doesn't help out and their family doesn't care about them um, or they're estranged or they're out of state. So, so that it becomes a bit more complicated, but I've had people get automobile uh, traffic tickets and, and have to deal with that. And in, in my own way, um, there is the knowledge that anybody can anonymously report a bad driver. So I've done that too, as a physician, you know, I, I would ask my staff to get me an envelope in a certain form um, and have that form filled out. And I would report them as, as, as needing to be evaluated by the DMV. Department of Motor Vehicles. So when all else fails, I, I'm guilty of doing that, or I take credit for doing that because no one else would get the driver off the road. And, and I believe it's that subtitle of my book, A Life-Saving Strategy. And to that point then, let's, let's talk about having the talk, as it were, about giving up driving. Uh, do you have recommended tips that uh, you would give to who's ever listening today, whether it be a family member, it could be that trusted friend, it could be whoever, but what are the right things to say as part of that conversation with an older adult about giving up driving? Well, I do talk about it in my book and I do give some scenarios that people can, can read if they wish to. Um, first, I believe you have to convey that the discussion originates from love that we care about you. And as I said earlier, we've had this conversation before. We decided that we were going to have it when the time came and now the time has come. Um, and, and then it requires patience and persistence um, because their loved one's life is at stake. You know, and I also tell people my expression, beg, borrow and steal to get that person off the road. So if it means taking the car in for service and there being a big problem and they couldn't get back and then they lost the keys and the battery died, and you know, whatever it would take uh, to um, accomplish that. The, the other thing is explain some of the finances of what car ownership requires. Well, there is there's gasoline, which has gone up in cost now. Uh, there are taxes. There's a loan or a, or a lease payment on a car. 
And then there's insurance and automobile insurance for older adults, especially if they've had a, a violation or an accident is incredibly expensive. And, and one of my success stories, although I, I, I didn't make slight mention, but this woman told me she decided on her own. She said, I sat down with my son and he said, mom, between the gas taxes, insurance and the, and the, the cost of, of money for the car, um, you could save a whole lot of money by using Uber and, and the transportation in your living facility. Um, she got rid of her car immediately with, with that logic. Um, I had an, another patient who told me she would stop driving at 95. Um, she still drove to about 98 and I did attend her hundredth birthday, but she had stopped driving. So she did finally succumb to that. And, and, um, she was pleased that she could report that how long she drove for, um, and was proud of it and proud that she gave up her license without an accident or a violation. And would you also say that there are certain mistakes that families can make when they have this talk that they shouldn't say or certain approaches? What would you tell us? Um, I think you, the, the mistake is not being prepared for objections. You know, if, if you're going to try and, and sell anything, be prepared that there are going to be objections and be prepared to have responses to those objections. And, and it reminds me that you know, there's, there's the, the costs of, of driving is the cost of loss of life, loss of wealth and loss of an estate. And that the families may be looking forward or needing financial support from a, a parent when they die for that parent to be in an accident and put their estate in jeopardy um, is a significant, significantly bad event. And, and I did have a patient who moved down from New York and I knew where he lived in New York and, and <clears throat> it was kind of an abrupt move. And I said, throughout the interview and the, the new patient visit, I said, so exactly why did you move here? Because you were so comfortable in New York and Queens. I know exactly where you lived. And finally, at the end of the interview, at the end of the visit, he said, doctor, I want to tell you the reason I moved down here is as I was involved in a motor vehicle accident. I was backing up my car and putting it in the same place I always put in. And the next thing I knew, I drove my car through the window of a cleaners. And, and I know that I injured some people and, and the word craniotomy was on one of the insurance reports. And a craniotomy is what happened to the person who he hit, um, which is a major head injury that required them to open up her skull and reduce the pressure and bleeding and so forth. So he seriously injured or killed someone in that event. So it's you lose your legacy, you lose your, your wealth, and it all can be prevented. And it's one of the things that we as physicians do. We try to do preventive, take a preventive approach to things. And, and that's a preventive approach. With that said, then, if you've got people now who can't drive anymore or shouldn't drive, and you gave some excellent examples, Explain to us what are the pros and cons of older adults not driving anymore? You mentioned a little bit about the family who got in touch with you who said grandpa or grandma has to continue to keep driving. So that really doesn't sound good. But give us a little bit more detail about the pros and cons if an older adult can't drive anymore. Well, if an older adult is not driving... Uh, they've re they've improved their potential safety. They've re they've reduced cost, 
they've conserved their wealth, they avoid harming anybody, and they maintain their, their legacy. The problem is that when they stop driving, they feel a loss of independence, which is not true because there are ways of getting around. They, they feel that they have to move, uh, making a move from a home they've lived in for a long time uh, is a really negative uh, impact on people. They may have to move out of town to be with family, and they see that as a negative. Um, and, and when people move, they might move just six miles away from where they lived, and, and they cut out a whole bunch of their friends. And, and I experienced that with my parents. They moved from uh, a freestanding home that they lived in for 20 or so years, and they moved up the road in Florida to a, a living facility that had all kinds of resources for them. And none of their friends came to visit. They, they lost all the friends that they had, and they had to basically start over. And, and, and that was um, a sad thing for my parents. And it was a sad thing for me as their son to have recommended that they make a move. And then they lost their friends and their their connections to their synagogue and golf course and, and all those things that they had for so long. Um, so there's, there's a negative consequence and the, the consequence of realizing that uh, family is not as supportive as they need to be and that the, the individual feels they're, they're isolated. And we know isolation and loneliness is a health hazard. So let's talk about viable alternative transportation options if, if an older adult can't drive any longer. And I was wondering, should it be um, kind of a prerequisite for to, to explore those viable alternatives, say, before taking away the keys or, or recommending that they don't drive any longer? I'm wondering if the talk in itself is certainly viewed as negative, but it would be nice to have something positive to say, and and the positive would have to be alternative transportation options. So what can you tell us or tell our listeners about alternative transportation options? Well, it's really important, and and the point that you made and agree with is be prepared when you have the, the talk. And that means do your research, know what the options are. No, no, you could recommend Uber, but if there's not a viable smartphone for use, that doesn't work. Although Uber can be, you can make a reservation for Uber or a son can do it for a child, for an adult parent and and have it arrive and and take care of all that. Um, But do your homework. Um, And so there's Uber and Lyft and then um, us, Put a circle of friends together. Well, I've talked to some of your friends and, you know, you, you know, you go bowling with this one and you go play Mahjong with that one. And they're all willing to pick you up and take you where you need to be. Or, um, you know, you live in this building and you can go down and play Mahjong or cards downstairs in the social hair area. So you don't have to do that. And there's there's a hairdresser who's a mile away and and, you know, we can drop you off because it's on our way to work and we can do it to pick you up at lunch hour and, you know, have some idea of some of the things that you can do. And then, you know, it's a great opportunity for bonding between a grandchild and a grandparent and that, yeah, we'll send uh, Debbie and she's going to be able to drive you on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons. And she's totally available from when the time she gets out of school at 3.30 until 6 and she can help you with all these chores. And um, it, it's become more and more available to have grocery delivery, for example. 
And I know, and people know because of the COVID pandemic and people didn't go out, we got more and more used to having Amazon and Walmart drop stuff off at our house. So groceries are delivered, even though we drive and we live really close to a grocery store. My wife will um, have deliveries from different food organizations that give us some of the special things that she wants. So it's delivered to our door. So there's there's no reason to necessarily have to go out to do these things. And families can help do that and hopefully make it palatable so that someone will accept it because that's part of the problem. Yeah, I'm also wondering, too, I mean, since we don't know exactly where this show is broadcast, sometimes people are living in less urban areas where perhaps transportation options or ride alternative transportation solutions. Um, I suspect maybe if somebody is living in a rural area, there may have to be different kinds of situations or plans for older adults who are living alone or whatever. Have you had that situation where you had patients who lived in less urban areas? I practice in Clearwater, which is not urban, but it's not rural. And so I haven't experienced that. I've experienced the fact that um, you've reminded me, I've had patients tell me they started driving when they were 10 and no one's going to get that license away from them. I said, well, how were you driving when you were 10? Well, I was on the farm and we had a tractor. And then by the time I was 12, I was planting the seeds and running the tractor. And, you know, that's what I had to do. So why would, you know, what's this idea that I have to give anything up? Uh, but you're absolutely right that if you live more rurally, uh, it takes a bit more originality. And some of those people, unfortunately, may have to move to uh, facilities where meals are available and hairdressers are available and those sorts of things. Um, I'm really anxious to, and I've set up my home so my wife and I can age in place. But we think about it, and this is my profession, so we think about it and we know where the grocery store is and and how we're going to be able to do this um, going forward. But other people who are not in that situation, more rural, more of a difficulty. Um, And in our generation, in our lifetime, there'll be autonomous driving cars. So we would be able to get in a car and take us to the grocery store and we won't have to drive it. Uh, and some of the safety of that will be better. We still have to deal, you and I, and, and aging adults with mobility problems once we get there. Um, it may be difficult to do grocery shopping when we're 92 years old. And um, we'll, we'll, who knows what the future will bring in terms of having groceries delivered and, and that sort of thing. Well, and we're just about out of time, Dr. Bernstein. And I just wanted to get one final um, piece of information from you as to recommendation for helpful resources to learn about driving and older adults. What, what, what do we need to know? Well, first, you mentioned my book, I've seen your driving dilemma. So that's one availability. Um, the Department of Transportation has a website, NHTSA, the National Tra- uh, Highway Transportation Safety Administration. I've been on that website recently, and it's really quite good. You do need to drill down a little bit to to get to the senior driving, but it's there. Uh, The National Institute on Aging through the National Institute of Health has something similar, um, and that would be the nia.nih.gov. And um, AARP has some 
um, supportive materials for having this discussion. And, you know, people who are members of AARP, I think you can start at age 50 or 55 so that there's, there's access to this information um, quite readily. Uh, so you don't have to be the 90-year-old getting the AARP magazine. You can be the child of that, that, that member who's 60 or 65, um, and there's a wealth of information there. So there's stuff out there. Um, I know that um, physicians nowadays are so strapped for time uh, with all the other things they have to do that they might neglect discussing senior driving. And, and that's sad for me. And, and uh, I took it upon myself to, to pay a lot of attention to it. Um, but with all the, the different whistles and bells that we have to attend to as physicians and, and medical staffs, it's, it's a challenge. Well said. And that's a good way of ending this really very informative program with Dr. David Bernstein, geriatrician and author of Senior Driving Dilemmas, Life-Saving Strategies for joining me today. And thank you so much, Dr. Bernstein. Cheryl, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for the challenging questions. I really appreciated that. Okay. Well, I also want to remind our listeners that if you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is at agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at this site, you can access all Aging Matters radio and TV show content, in addition to the Aging Matters podcast on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and you can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters again today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Mm-hmm.